Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clatch. This is Marianne Russo. Thank you for joining us tonight. I want to say hello to um, my wonderful moderators over on the Twitter tweet chat, Mae Wilkinson and Chuck Wally. They're going to be uh, riding shotgun, as Chuck would say, if you'd like to go over there and join them with the hashtag TCK. Tonight, we are doing a topic that I've wanted to do for a very long time with a guest that I have wanted on for a very long time. Uh, Wendy Young, the creator of Kid Lucians, is with us tonight. And I cannot tell you enough about this resource that she has for parents. And tonight's show isn't just for special needs parents. This really, we're going to talk about topics that involve all parents in conversations that unfortunately they need sometimes need to have with their children. And we're going to talk about the tough stuff. We're going to talk about talking about divorce, death, relocation, and um, you know some really emotionally challenging conversations. So let me welcome Wendy Young. Thank you for joining us. Marianne, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, I'm excited you're here. Why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do, and then tell us about this resource, because as I said, you know, your your website just, it doesn't end. There's, there's so much <laughs> information on there. It's fantastic. Well, thank you, Marianne. Um, I am a child and family therapist, a clinical social worker. I, I reside in the state of Michigan and actually in the beautiful Upper Peninsula of Michigan, um, which is way, way, way five miles up over the bridge um, into the UP. We're actually closer to Wisconsin than we are to most of the things in Michigan. And I've been in practice for close to 25 years now um, as a therapist, um, specializing mostly in children and adolescents and families. And I've had just a really really opportune moments, um, I think, as a therapist, and I've been really blessed with the opportunities that have come my way in terms of working with people and kind of finding out some of the things that, that people, you know, deal with on a on a daily basis for some people, and sometimes the things that they deal with, um, the transitions in life, the things that we're going to talk about today, uh, dealing with divorce and death and relocation, and I think those are some pretty tough things that parents face when, um, you know, raising their children, because we often read books about raising children and, um, uh, you know, sleep for children and how to feed your child and sleep schedules and all those kinds of things, and then we don't get much information at all about how to help our child when we face a divorce or how to help our child um, if a sibling dies or if a grandparent dies or even if a pet dies, what do we do then? And then in today's uh, day and age with all of the kind of issues we have with unemployment and other kinds of things that are going on, we have a lot of people having to move, being forced to move out of their homes, being forced to move to different states, looking for new jobs. So those core issues were things that I found that families came to me um, you know, struggling with because they really had nowhere to turn and they didn't know of a resource um, that they could use to kind of guide them through that process with their children. And so what I did um, as a result of these years of providing therapy, and I would see these core issues come up over and over again, I thought, you know, it's really not about the therapist and what the therapist does. It's really about parents and how they parent their children because a therapist really, if you look at the definition, it's an agent of change. And that, therefore, anybody could be an agent of change. And parents spend a ton more time with their children than a therapist could ever spend with a, with that child. And so parents really are the experts on their children. And what I did when my kids were younger, and I have, I'm have i a mom of three, I have I'm a, an 11-year-old, that's the baby, then I have a 14-year-old, and I have a 17-year-old. When they were still in diapers, I had this vision of something that I wanted to build, and I wasn't quite sure what it would look like. And I sat with that idea for over seven years until it actually morphed into what is now Kid Lucians. And I came up with the name um, merely just thinking about Kid Lucians, solutions for kids. So we just took the word kid and added like solutions but lopped off the SO and called it Kid Lucians. And there you have it. And it went live um, online approximately four years ago. And um, I couldn't be happier with it. I've met so many fabulous people, including yourself, through Kid Lucians. Um, yes, I, and and you know the, what I like about it is that you really deal with a lot of the emotions. You deal about with you, anger and sadness, and I think that's something that you know I want to preface the interview by saying that um, you know we're going to talk about some very tough topics, and I think the parents need to understand that sometimes when kids are expressing sadness. Um, they have anger, and sometimes when they are expressing anger, it's really sadness and depression. So, um, you know, it's, it's so difficult for parents to unravel 
Um, but why don't we start first um, talking about divorce? Mm-hmm. Because the the pressures on special needs families are just enormous, and when you know you compile just the the normal um, stress of um, dealing with a, a dysregulated child, and then you add to it the financial issues and just, you know, living with uh, someone alone. It's very difficult. So, um, you know, what what are the things that parents need to look for, and how do they look at the situation through the eyes of their child? Well, when you look, look at a child and you're dealing with something such as divorce, which is it's a major life transition, and all of the things we're talking about today are major life transitions. And these things are difficult for, for adults to deal with, if you think about it. Um, and then you take a child and you look at the fact that they have very limited life experience in dealing with change. They have very limited coping skills. They have limited cognitive abilities to process what all of this means. And they also have very limited language to discuss how this is affecting them both physiologically and emotionally. And so when you combine all those together, and if you add on top of that some sort of a special need that the child may have, um, it may put them in a whole other bracket of, of lack of understanding and being able to process what's happening. And so for the parent to kind of take a step back and actually realize that this child is struggling in ways that we can't even begin to imagine when we think about the way that we struggle as adults to wrap our brain around what it's like to go through a divorce or what it's like to deal with the death of a loved one or what it's like to leave behind everything you've known to move to a new state that you may have never been to before where you may not know a soul. And then you take all of that and you put it into the the mind of a child, this mind that isn't even fully developed and not even close to developed yet, um, and that it can cause some major behavioral issues and major behavioral reactions for them. Uh, They have no other way to say to you, this is how I feel, this is what's going on with me. And so it leaks out all over the place in their behavior. Well, how does a parent first get control of themselves? Because obviously if they're in a divorce situation, usually at least one person is very unhappy. There's usually anger. Um, You know, how does a parent first get control of themselves? And how do they then approach the child? What is the best way of telling a child, you know, by age? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's an excellent question, that whole idea of how do they con- get control of it themselves, because that's a process. It's not something that happens overnight. It's not something that we can wave a magic wand and uh, mom or dad can kind of put it on the back burner and, and take their emotion out of it. Yet it's really important that parents be able to separate out their own anger and their own sadness and their own sense of upset so that it's not clouding and kind of putting this other cloud on top of the child's feelings that they're already having. And for some people, that would be um, talking to friends and processing it with friends and family and getting support in that manner. Um, Always, always, always looking for support outside of um, their children. And the children are not, you know, the ones that we want to go to for support. And I think that gets particularly murky if you have older children, if you have kids who are teenagers or maybe even late teens. And I would say even into their 20s, I uh, know people who have been uh, parents that have divorced when the children were in their 20s and the kind of psychological mayhem that kind of caused for kids when they're trying to include the kids in and they're trying to share information with the kids and sharing things that happen and what they're angry about. That's best kept separate from the kids. And um, mm-hmm. speaking out support through friends, through family, um, through a therapist if if needed, if, if that would be a helpful thing for the parent so that they can kind of get grounded and kind of get set on a path where they're able to manage those big feelings of their own so that they can then in turn help their child uh, manage their feelings as well. And I, I yep. think, you know, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say because, you know, I think that oftentimes parents are so wrapped up in it um, that, you know, they don't realize that, you know, sometimes the child is feeling guilt or blame, um, you know, and they're scared. Absolutely. Um, And and I see so often um, that the parent... Um, almost become that you know, uses the child as a confidant, and it's just so that's, wrong. Right, that's, you know? that's exactly it. And the technical term for that is um, triangulating them into that system and bringing them and making them a third party in that relationship, which is always damaging to the child, and it's always troubling to the child, and it always causes a certain degree of trauma for the child. 
So to the degree, and, and I know this for a fact because I've worked with many, many families through the years, parents always love their children and always want what's best for them. And it sometimes gets clouded over when their emotions get so out of control. And so parents need to bear in mind first and foremost that um, if they want to protect their child and love their child and be there for them child, they need to find another outlet to deal with those feelings that they're having themselves so that they can in turn support their child as well. And I think that, you know, you mentioned that that issue about a tremendous amount of guilt, and that's so true. That whole idea that the question in, in, in a child's mind is often, what did I do to cause this? You know what? If I were smarter, if I got better grades, if I cleaned my right. room, if I cleaned my plate right. at dinner, this would have never happened. And right. kids need a very strong message from both parents that that is not the case. And they need to be reminded time and time again, not just the first time parents sit down. And ideally, both parents would sit down together with that child and talk with them. Um, and if that means the parents need to get a mediator to help them work through whatever issues they have, just to be in a room together with their kids, that would be the best approach. Um, so that the, right. that the child... Telling them in the heat of anger is just um, you know, right. devastating. Absolutely. You know, you find so many parents today um, wind up staying together in terrible marriages for financial reasons. Right. Um, which is also very difficult on a child. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, let's just, I, before I go there, just, you know, how, how would you say it would be a, a good way to phrase, you know, two children? Um, you know, what's happening and, you know, the fact that no one is leaving them. Right. Oh, um, you know, because I think there's an abandon abandonment issue. Absolutely. It absolutely is an abandonment issue. Um, particularly, you know, generally the children are staying with one parent or the other, and sometimes there's joint custody when they're going back and forth. And there's right. always that feeling of separation when you are with one parent versus the other. There are a whole lot, there are a whole host of other things that come into play um, with a divorce situation for kids. But to, to answer your question, the idea that parents would sit them down and be able to say to them together, you know, and, and be very honest with them and be very factual but developmentally appropriate. So, for instance, if you're dealing with a four- and a six-year-old, you might say, you know, lately you might have noticed mom and dad, we've been fighting or we've been arguing, and that's not really fun for anyone. And mom and dad are having really, really big problems that are big people problems. And it makes us not be able, and we're not able to work them out, and it makes us not able to live together anymore or be together anymore. But that doesn't have anything to do with us being your mom and your dad. And we will always be your mom and your dad. And we will always love you. And we will always be there for you. And no matter what big problems we have that are big people problems, we will never make that be your problem. You will always be loved. You will always be wanted. And then kids need to get that message over and over again from both parents. Um, and, of course, we have that whole issue of when parents are, when they go through a really bad divorce and there's a lot of right. hard feelings, you have the thing where dad might badmouth mom um, when they're staying with dad and mom might badmouth dad when they're staying. And what a child gets is divided loyalties. They're not sure who they need to kind of be loyal to, and it causes all kinds of confusion for that child. Um, so the number one thing that parents can do for their children is to get support and get assistance outside of their children and not kind of corner their children and, and round them into this um, this relationship dynamic that is pretty challenging and pretty difficult. Right. And, you know, it's it's like, like we said, you know, it's really the adults just have to step up, um, have to put all of their bitterness um, aside because it's just so damaging and so unfair um, to the kids. And, you know, kids that are neurotypical kids, kids without um, any disabilities, but, you know, kids right. that have a difficulty in expressing themselves and um, regulating. I mean, this, this could be absolutely devastating. It can throw them um, another, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another topic that is very difficult mm-hmm. is um, talking to your children about death. And, you know, as I was just telling you before we went on the air, um, you know, unfortunately I've been in a position where I had to tell my daughters that their father died. I had to tell um, them that their brother um, died. And um, it is... It, it is, I, I will always say it, the most difficult thing I've ever had to do in my life. And um, it's just so important that it's handled well. So how would you approach a child, uh, you know, God forbid, the death of a parent or a grandparent, 
Right, right, absolutely. And first, just to say to you, Mary Ann, um, I am so sorry about those losses in your life, and I had had no idea until we talked briefly before um, this show tonight. Um, and it is, it's it's something that it's hard to imagine, I think, for those of us who have never had to do this. Um, it is a very difficult thing, and I think being able to explain it to children um, in a way that's helpful and supportive to them can make all the difference in their adjustment and in them processing their grief, which grief, of course, is not a one-shot deal. It is a very long process, and it goes on for for life. You know, it traverses the lifespan grief does. Uh, So I think when we are, there's a couple of things. When we're trying to explain death to a child, it's often helpful to explain life to them first. And it depends on the age of the child as well. But for a young child, we want them to kind of point out to them that we know that somebody's living because they can breathe and they can eat and they can laugh and talk. We can feel their hearts beating in their chest, and you can even have a young child put their hand on their chest and feel their heart beating. Um, And we know that when people are alive, they can feel hot and cold and pain. But when somebody dies, they don't need to breathe or eat or laugh or talk. Their body has stopped working, and there's nothing that anybody can do to bring that back. Their body is done working, and they can no longer feel pain or heat or cold They can no longer talk to us or hug us or do any of the things that they used to do with us. And that um, we need to allow children to ask questions. We need to allow them to wonder about that with us. And here's the funny thing, I think, not funny, but the very interesting thing, is that children will sometimes ask questions and we have no clue what the answer is. And I think the best response to that is to say to them, you know what, I don't know, but let's wonder about that together and what might the answer to that be. It's okay not to know. Um, another really important piece, and I think this is, this is crucial, is that we use the words died and death and dead. And even though these words kind of seem really harsh to us, um, we kind of want to couch them in, in, in nicer terms or we want to use euphemisms so that it seems like a softer blow. Yeah, we see right. those words like, he passed away, or, or look at Nana, she's right. sleeping. Um, right. um, she's with the angels, Grandpa's going on a long trip, um, and, and the one that gets me the most, he's expired. And I think that's often used in hospitals, he's wow. expired. And that is something right. that we see you know, on, on, on food in a grocery store. And so we want to use the words dead and died and death because when we don't use those words kids can get really really confused Um, and they may be fearful of sleeping because they see that grandma's no longer here or with us she can't respond she can't talk we won't see her ever again and so some kids develop a fear of sleep and if they have trouble processing um, when you say she's sleeping that you're just using a euphemism that that's not the reality they may not sleep for a very very long time because of that so, and, you know, another thing is if you do have the time, um, the, the best thing on your side is preparing them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously there are sudden um, deaths, but, um, you know, like in my case, I mean, you know, I would tell them when I, when I knew that, um, you know, there was no hope that, mm-hmm. you know, the doctors are trying, but they may not be able to make right. it better. Right. Um, you know, and just preparing them and not completely sheltering um, the children at no matter what age, when one was seven and one was um, nine. Um, you know, it's really better that they they know that something is coming and that you're somewhat honest with them, too, because it also is, is a matter of trust, you know, right. that they have to be able to trust you. That's um, right. Yeah, you know, and, and I think what's important that a lot of parents um, don't do is that they don't get the school on board because when there's a major loss of a parent mm-hmm. um, or a sibling, right. there is... Um, just it, it's very difficult for the children to go back to school. Mm, yeah, yeah, and that's something that really needs to be um, addressed carefully. Like in my case, my daughter went to school um, when she went back. She went back and she went during recess. Mm-hmm. So you know that was easier, and the social um, worker from the school and the principal were on the playground. So you know, getting the school on board is important too, because you know we sometimes forget that these kids. Um, you know, they, they, they're they aware of social norms mm-hmm. um, and other people's awkwardness as well. Oh, absolutely. That's a hugely important piece that you just added. And I think, you know, there's a saying by Margaret Mead, and it goes, I hope I don't dice this up too much. It goes something like, um, when when babies are born, we rejoice. When couples marry, we jubilate. And when people die, we act as if nothing has happened. And I will tell you, having worked with numbers of kids in the school districts that I've worked in, and, and I currently do work in two schools as well, um, when children come back after um, a, a death, 
that is hands down one of the things that especially teenagers will often say to me. Nobody even acknowledged it. My teachers didn't say a word. And they're going to seven, eight different classes a day. Nobody even acknowledged it. It's like it never even happened. And that to me is the saddest thing that this child has just lost somebody that they love dearly and now no and then nobody's acting like anything happened and so there's no it's like it's not even validated that we we see you we know we you know we are sorry for your loss um one child once told me one of my teachers came up to me after class and asked how I was doing and said they were sorry and and said don't worry about the work this week and you let me know how you're doing next week so there's a, I mean, there's a huge learning curve, I think, and I've been in the field for 25 years, and I look at the fact that that learning curve is still quite huge. And I think one of the things is is that um, even sometimes therapists haven't worked, um, and social workers haven't been involved in the field um, working with death and dying, and I think part of my comfort level with it came from working as a hospice social worker for a number of years and working with children who were losing um, parents and um, parents who were losing children and, and, and children who were losing siblings. And we have to kind of get comfortable with our discomfort because death is not something we like to look square in the eye. It's not something we like to talk about very much as a society. Um, and so there's a huge learning curve still, I think, for all of us in terms of how we treat each other. And I think there are different cultures that do a beautiful job of grieving and helping support oh, their grieving people. Mm-hmm. Um, the Jewish culture, for one, I know one of the things they do is they have a black armband that they wear for a year while they're grieving after the death of a loved one that tells the world, be gentle with me, I've lost somebody special. Um, we don't and do that don't- in our culture. And I think that's, you know, um, almost an onus on the school or teachers as well because I know, um, you know, for my children, um, the whole class made a card. Yes. Um, you know, I can remember from what I remember of it, um, you know, turning around and looking up at um, a balcony at the church and there was just almost the whole grade of third and fifth graders right. um, who had left school and came. And, you know, it, in a way it was an awkward feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, for the kids, but really, in the end, it was really a very nice thing. Yeah. Because um, it got them past that. It was. It showed respect. Right. Um, you know, and then these kids, you know, deserve that. They deserve respect, and they've lost a, a, a parent or a sibling. Um, right. But you know, I think it's something that's important that I wanted you to touch upon mm-hmm. is that when it comes to grief, mm-hmm. everyone grieves differently. Like, you'll find that, like, I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to take the covers off of my head for months. Right. Where my husband couldn't sit still. Mm-hmm. And it's the same for children. So how do, you, how, do you ba- how do you find a way to find their comfort zone? Well, I think one of the best ways we do that is by observing them and seeing what they're doing, and we ask them. And I think that is probably one of the most respectful ways to deal with that is to ask and say, here are some things we can do to help you um, deal with these big feelings because there's a whole mixture of feelings that come when you lose somebody, sadness and anger and you name it, and it's just it's confusing as well. And so to ask your child and give them different options of ways that they can deal with it. Do you want to talk about it with me? Do you want to talk about it right now? Or do you want me to ask you um, tomorrow, would you like to talk about in the morning or do you want to talk about it in the evening is it better for you if we get a big notebook and if a child's able to write and you can write down what your worries and concerns are in that and then i can answer you in there because some kids won't be verbal about it they may mm-hmm. be they need may need to step back and think about it more and want to write it down and so asking kids if they want to write it down if they want to talk about it if they want to take some play-doh and shape what their grief looks like um for some children when we do play therapy with them we have them come in and um, maybe if dad had died of cancer cancer or mom had died of, of some other disease, we ask them to create what they think the cancer looks like or what that disease looked like, and we ask, what right. do you want to do with that now? And oftentimes they, they destroy it in some way. They stomp on it, they rip it apart, they pinch it, and that way they can process some of the anger. Uh, because kids are processing feelings very differently than adults do. We tend to talk about it. We also may have some phys- 
physical outlets, uh, but kids need a way, and, and usually it's through play, to kind of get those feelings out. And making memory boxes with them, helping them to celebrate Absolutely. the deceased life mm-hmm. and all the things that they brought into the life of this child and what they will remember about them, saving snippets of, of pictures and newspaper clippings and whatever else, um, and, and even writing down memories. I think that's a really important thing with kids because kids will forget over time. If, if they are five when they lose somebody that they love, um, and then by the time they're 15 they might think, well, what did I like doing with him when he was still alive? And it's really nice to have that keepsake where a parent or, or another caregiver can ask, tell us what you liked most what did you like to do most with Daddy? What did you love doing with him? And to actually write that in, in, on a notebook paper or some really special paper and keep that in the memory box as well. Um, and, so, and I think also we need to remember that most children are not used to attending funerals or um, wakes. Correct. Um, or yeah. a shiver. And, you know, that can't be taken for granted that you really have to explain Mm-hmm. Um, what they're going to be seeing and what's going to be happening, and it needs to be age appropriate. It depends on the kid. You know, it's funny um, when we were discussing having this interview. My daughter happened to be reading um, the child called it, or the boy called it, and it's a story of, I mean, horrific abuse of, of a boy, and um, you know how he overcame it. And I kept thinking to myself, what makes one per- one child able to be so resilient? where another could fall apart, you know? Um, and, and, you know, I think that, that speaks to that you really need to try to figure out what your kid can handle. South. We shouldn't assume that that's the way the child's going to feel the next day or the next or a month later. So we, as parents and caregivers, always have to keep the door open and say, you know what, I'm here for you, I love you, and I'm going to open up this conversation again with you because I want to make sure you're okay and I want to make sure that there's nothing else I can do to help you right now. Um, And you know what, sometimes just crying together. I think another important thing is that children really need to see the parents grieve as well because what starts happening for them, depending on age, if they see, I never see mom cry, I never see dad cry, what is going on, what's wrong with me that I still feel all these sad feelings, that I can't handle this. Something must be really wrong with me. The child doesn't know that mom and dad might be staying up at night crying after the kids go to bed because they don't want the kids to be upset. Well, death is upsetting to everyone, and so it's important for kids to see their parents grieve as well. And I'm not talking about the kind of grief where we're gnashing our teeth and we're burying our head in the pillow and pounding walls. Mm -hmm. I'm just talking about seeing the tears flow and seeing the sadness and acknowledging that together. That's a hugely important piece for kids. Um, And I have had... Go ahead. It, it's the same as when, um, you know, you, I, I often tell parents that, um, you know, when you're having a bad day, when something happens that upsets you, it's a good thing mm-hmm. to let your children see how you deal with it. It, it teaches them coping skills um, and something to mirror. Um, you know, but and just as we spoke about with divorce, I mean, if you're having a very hard time dealing with it, and believe me, it's it's very difficult to deal with, you have to seek help. Mm-hmm. You know, because right. um, you know these these kids really are de- still depending on you. Oh, so um, much. Yeah. Oh, I just wanted. Now, to, I wanted to just. I just wanted to say just before we go a little sure. further that for sure. some reason this show is showing up that it's a thirty minute show, which it is oh. not. So okay. we may go off the air live, but this is going to be taped, so okay. anyone can listen if we do get cut off to it um, in its entirety and archive. Okay. Sure. Now let's talk about suicide. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, I mean, it's hard for an adult to understand how somebody could be able to do that. How would you explain suicide to a child? Right. It, it's it's probably it's a difficult task, just as explaining death to a child is. But it is a reality, and it's something that children face in their families. And I have had that task of helping families explain to their children um, that a parent had su- completed a suicide. And I think that it takes some extra special care when you're dealing with a suicide because there are a lot of extra questions that come with it. Um, And I would recommend that if parents are really struggling with this, that they do get some outside help, a counselor or a therapist or somebody who can assist them. Uh, Because I think the tendency is, again, to try to shelter kids and not tell them the reality because there's such a stigma attached to suicide in our society. However, we can explain it in a way that's very respectful to the deceased And what we would say to a child is, you know, sometimes people get sicknesses in their body that make them so very sick 
that there's nothing that a doctor can do to fix it. Now, doctors have a lot of medicines and they can do a lot of things, but when there's also another kind of sickness that people can get, and that kind is inside of their brain. And sometimes we can get help for them and sometimes we cannot. And that's the kind of sickness that Daddy had. And his brain was so sick that Daddy decided to end his own life. And Daddy made his own body stop working. And Daddy is no longer with us. And then we go through the whole process of explaining what death is, just like we just talked about in the beginning, you know, what life is and then what death is when a body no longer works. And then, of course, for some kids, we just leave it at that, and they'll come back with more questions as, as time goes on. Now, the interesting thing with helping children understand death, and you may have experienced this yourself, Marianne, is that with each developmental phase, there's a new understanding cognitively about what death is all about. And so there's there are these like little spurts of grief that they can experience as they grow, as they understand it better and understand the finality of death. So if you have a four-year-old who doesn't grasp the idea of the finality of death, but then again when they turn six or seven and they kind of are understanding this is forever, um, it's a whole other realm of grief for them. Right. And, you know, and it, what's always surprising to me is, you know, it's funny, it just happened to me two days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you never know when it's going to pop its head, you know, and, and, and the first year or so is just, yeah. you, you're living in a fog. The children are living in a fog, you're living in a fog, right. and everything is just a loop going on in your head over and over. Right. And, you know, time does heal. But it's amazing that five years later, seven years later, something can happen that can just bring it back to them so raw. The other day, I'm going to admit this, um, I was driving with my daughter, and um, I needed to tell my husband something. And I went to pick up my phone to text, and she just fell apart. Oh. And she said to me, how could you do that? Don't you know what it was like for us to lose you know, our, our brother in a car accident? Oh. And you're going to test. And it just hit me, and I turned oh. around, and she was just so shaken up. So wow. you never really know. Wow. Um, yeah. You know, and another thing is I wanted to talk about is pets, because I think parents really underestimate the impact oh, absolutely. of these children when they lose their pets. I mean, I don't, because I get devastated. But, yeah. um, you know, right. how should a parent deal with that? Well, pets are very the same much... thing. You can't say, because, you know, there's always that term, we're going to put him to sleep. Oh, yeah. You know? You know, oh, and it's interesting because just this weekend I was with a bunch of parents and uh, and we have teenage girls and, and this one, while we were talking about pets, and she happened to tell me about a story about a pet of hers. This was just out of the blue and how she had ended up having to get the dog put down, put to sleep, um, as we see, a, euphemis- a euphemism there, we get our dogs put to sleep. But she said her daughter, who's now 15, has no clue that the dog ne- that the dog didn't run away, which is the story she told her back when she was about six years old. And mm-hmm. here's the deal. With pet loss, um, it is not a dress rehearsal. We tend to think, like, well, it's really not that big of a deal, just a dog, and we'll move forward and they'll get over it. Pet loss is the real deal. It is we have total grief reactions just like we do to our loved ones, and they are very much a part of our family. And, of course, we want to, again, explain death just like we would about a person, about body stopping working and that, you know, Fluffy's not no longer here with us and we will have memories of him and all of those things. But we never want to say Fluffy ran away or we gave Fluffy to an old friend of ours because the child will find out years down the road most likely. Um, and here's this one mom who's kept it from her daughter for a good number of years. But one day that child may find out, and what does that do to trust? It erodes the trust. If you lied to me about that, what else have you mm-hmm. lied to me about? Um, kind of kind of questioning, so we want to treat pet loss as a very um, a, a very major loss issue for children, as it is for many adults, right. for most adults. And a lot of parents scoop up the dog and they go to the vet, mm-hmm. and um, the children are just you know, and, and you know, I, I think that's probably easier in some mm-hmm. ways, but um, you know, with our dogs, I mean, we just we love our dogs, yes. and. Um, you know, I mean, we have like major cry fests. I mean, my last yeah. dog was like this is a funny story. My last dog was um, like bionic. Mm-hmm. Um, he was like 14 years old, and he was wow. so sick. And three times, my husband brought him to have him put down, and the kids would all come down. My daughter came in from the city. It would be a big cry fest, the kissing, oh. the hugging. Yeah. Three times, he came back with the dog. <gasps> the vet was like, "Let's try this." Oh <laughs> Let's my god! Try that. I'm like, "Oh my wow. god!" This is all terrible. those false alarms, yes. <laughs> and the poor thing, the last time it left, it's like, yeah, okay, Gabe. <laughs> he didn't come back. <laughs> this is terrible, and I'm even telling the story. But um, the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, scooping the dog out the back door isn't probably the best idea either. 
No, it's not. And, you know, and I think even the idea that if, if a dog has died and then we try to dispose of the dog in some way without the children knowing or seeing, I mean, I think that we try, we just try to shroud death, I mean, in, in our society. Mm-hmm. And you think about the history of death and how in our society funerals were held at home and now everything's, it's very institutionalized, hospital, funerals, homes, everything. And there are a lot of health and safety risks and reasons that we do that. Um, but we have really sterilized death in our society. And for kids to have a parent who is willing to show them what death is or explain it to them and walk them through it. And, and we have a opportunity on a daily basis. And my kids were very young when I worked in hospice. And I remember walking outside with my, my three-year-old, and there was a dead bird that had run into the window. And he was poking it with a stick, and he was trying to get it to fly. And, and I very gently tried to explain to him his body stopped working. You know, we we have to, we can find a way to remember that bird and all the singing he did and all the things he did. But we have opportunity every single day dead leaves dead flowers dead plants we can talk to kids about the life cycle and the fact that things don't live forever and that i think is a very scary thing for parents sometimes because kids start to get it at a certain age does that mean i'm going to die someday too and that's a frightening thing to talk to our kids about and you know often you know i mean i know i'm a in the sandwich generation and i know a lot of other families are and oftentimes you have a grandparent living in the home Mm-hmm. Um, who you know are become very sick, and it's you know just happened to my girlfriend, and um, you know it can be really frightening for these kids. Her daughter had a lot of problems with anxiety, sleeping, separation anxiety. Yes, yes, and I think to the degree that we can include kids, even if we if we have a person um, residing in our home who who is dying or who is terminal, and we know that they're not going to get better, that we share with the kids. Here's what's happening. Here's what we're probably going to expect is going to happen. And we allow those children to do something, um, to feel some sense of control over it, even if the sense of control is I can bring Grandpa his bowl of oatmeal in the morning. Grandpa might not eat it, but I'm going to walk it to him and I'm going to put it next to his bed. Um, And allow that child to draw a picture to hang at the bedside, something that they can do that's showing their love and demonstrating that that relationship is important to them while the person is still here is is hugely important actually to the grief process down the road. Right. And, um, you know, the drawing the pictures, like you said, you know, I know um, a lot of kids really express themselves that way. Absolutely. Um, yeah, they can write a little book. I mean, my daughter, um, you know, wrote a little book and drew pictures, and yes. I think it really helps them. But, you know, I think also you need to have caution. You know, another funny story is that um, after my son died, I brought my daughters for grief um, therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody, my sister-in-law recommended, and they go in and they have her draw a picture, and then they had us come in, and she said, "Oh wow, she, 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 this child very distraught. She used a black crayon." <gasps> so I said, "Okay," and she shows me the picture, and my my son was um, killed by a school bus, and oh. she used black on the tires. Oh. And I said. <gasps> They're black tires. <laughs> you know, what are you talking about? Oh. <laughs> I said, that's it. We're out of here. I but, have, um, oh, Marianne, your daughter is lucky to have you for a mom because <laughs> you are observant and you say it like it is, and she's very fortunate to have you to advocate for her because that, I'm, that's, that's really heartbreaking that that would have been said to you or even assumed or even thought of your daughter, you know, in that regard. Yeah, because my husband and I are both looking at each other like, are you kidding me? Oh. They're tires. Um, right. Oh. But, 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 you know, really it, it is important that um, these kids get to, to talk it out and Absolutely. get to feel whatever they feel. And, um, you know, I want to move on um, sure. to relocating. Yeah. And, you know, relocating, I mean, you could be moving to two towns away. You don't have to be moving across the country. Right. And it's such a big change. And, you know, I think it's so much harder on the tweens and the teens. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Um, especially when, you know, you have your friendships pretty well established and you have a routine down and you kind of know what the drill is and you know what to expect. I mean, we as a species pretty much, um, we, we thrive on routine and knowing what's coming next. We we all have this desire to know, like, what's next and what's going to come next. Um, and when you move, that just pulls the carpet right from under you because you have no clue what that's going to be like, um, especially if it means changing schools for kids. That has a huge impact on them, changing schools. Um, and I, I was a person who was raised in a military family, and I had the good fortune of going to nine schools by ninth grade myself. So wow. I know <laughs> I know first and foremost um, what 
you know, a, a move is like, and particularly relocations that take place across the country where you're, you know, moving from from the Midwest um, to the West and then from the West back somewhere else. So um, those were pretty big moves. And, and knowing um, what that can do to you and the kind of stress that can put on you, but also what kind of strength that can build for you and how you can turn that around and, and make that a strength based um, asset for your child, um, those moves, and helping to build resiliency and helping them develop some new skills and those sorts of things. So uh, moving can be something like anything that can cause stress in our life or anything that can cause challenge in our life is something that can actually end up being something that builds more resiliency in us. Right. You know, when we moved, um, my my son and my daughter were in fifth grade, and that's the next year was when they moved up to uh, middle school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so what we did was we were, you know, were building the house, and we had them start school in January and drove them from, oh. you know, six towns yeah. away, yeah. Um, just so that, that when they started um, middle school, they would know the kids. Right. And, um, you know, it worked out very well for them. Right. But, um, you know, it, it's it's tough. You know, you have to – and you know what? It's, it's really tough on the parents because you sort of get really comfortable in your little niche Um, of knowing, you know, what kids are into what and, uh, you know, you you sort of know the score and it's really, you're just thrown for such a loop. (laughs) Right, and you know the parents and you know what families you would allow your children to go stay Mm -hmm. the night at and what families you might not. And um, those are some pretty important considerations. So, you know, having to get to know the families of of the new friends and, and all of those. So there's a lot that goes along with it, to be sure. So now through all of these, you know, emotional issues, and they could be traumatic, I mean, really traumatic issues. Um, How does a parent know what's a normal grieving process Mm -hmm. um, and when it's time to really get some help? I would say that, you know, if you have a child who is continuing, well, here, let me first back up. I'm going to back up for a minute and just say that I think as a, we have a tendency as a society to want to hurry things up. We want a quick fix for everything. And that's really troubling when it comes to grief because grief doesn't really have a timeline. And as you just pointed out earlier in our conversation, your daughter had an experience just recently, and, and I don't know how many years ago it was, um, that eight, eight years. And, and right. so those grief experience and those grief spurts come up at any time and can come up 20 years down the road for her as well, as well as for anyone right. who, who experienced that loss. And the idea that we should try to contain grief and say this is problematic because you haven't gotten over it in a year, I don't, I don't look at that as problematic. I think when it continues to impact their life, when they are not sleeping, when they're suffering a great deal, they're not able to sleep, they're not able to eat, they're not able to function, they're not able to join with life again, they're not able to do some of the things that they once did that gave them pleasure. And it seems that nothing that once made them happy can make them happy any longer. Now, you know that first year of grief is probably the worst, and just getting through the first of everything um, in the absence of the loved one, um, is is a very difficult time. And, and many people talk about that as it's just a fog. It's like it's kind of like um, being like an out of body experience when you just watch yourself going through the motions Absolutely. and you're not really feeling it. You're just you're a body moving through space, um, you know. And after that year, but the fact that kids grieve so differently and the fact that so differently from adults and the fact that parents are often going through a parallel grief they have their own grief at the same time when there is an opportunity for a child to be in a group with other children who have experienced loss and there are many many large cities have fantastic groups for children um, oftentimes very free services i don't look at grief as a pathology it's not a pathological thing it is a it is a very Um, necessary response to a major loss in our life. And so when we can normalize the grief experience, when we can expose kids to other kids who have had a loss in their life and and had a death um, in their family, um, I think that we're able to help them move forward in in a much greater way than we can even in an individual therapy. But I think each parent knowing their child and knowing how their child functions and watching their child and observing that child has to make an individualized decision based on that child's functioning. 
Um, and you can expect that grades are going to go down. You can expect that there's going to be regressive behaviors. If you have right. a child with anxiety. Focus, un- unable to focus, right. Absolutely. Um, the brain is so busy just fo- just dealing with the grief and all the chemicals that are thrown into our body. I mean, I've worked with parents who have told me it feels like I have just been hit by a truck. It feels like I'm having a heart attack. It feels like there's something, like an elephant is sitting on my chest, and it's Mm -hmm. so hard to function. Um, And so parents need to take their cues from their child. And I think often, you know, you shared about an experience with your daughter. You took her to this one person whom didn't seem to get it, didn't seem to get your daughter, didn't seem to get her drawing, um, may have done more harm than good. I think one good thing for parents to think about is if I think my child is really struggling and I feel helpless to help them, I feel and I feel there's nothing I can do to change this for them, and it's very difficult for me to observe this, I'm going to get somebody from the outside to help us with this. I think Absolutely. to go and take them experimentally. I, I think this is this is how I always work with kids and families too. I say, you know what? It's really important that you feel comfortable here, and it's really important that this be a good mix for for all of us because you're going to spend some time here, and I'm going to get to know lots of things about you. And if you don't feel comfortable here, and this doesn't work for you, then it's not going to be a benefit. So I give them the three strike thing. I say, you come here three times, and if after three times this doesn't fit and it doesn't feel right, I will help you find a, a different place to go, which might be a better fit. And I think you're right. wise to listen to your gut feeling that said, run as fast as you can, run for the hills, get out of here, because this is not going to work. But then, and in, in, in following that, we found an amazing person. Oh, that's um, fabulous. You know, but, you know, I, I and please, I'm so glad you mentioned that, because I am not saying... Um, that you know you have a bad experience you leave i'm just i was just saying how bizarre it was right, um that right. the expectation and mm-hmm. and to overanalyze um but you know it's 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 essential but you know if 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 i had to give really advice and you know i'm no expert but if i had to give advice to a parent um who's going through this um where you've lost a a, a spouse or you've right. lost a child right. what i would say is to just make sure that these kids know they can feel what they can feel and yeah. it's okay to laugh. It's okay to go out with your friends and have fun. Yeah. It's okay to go on vacation. Yeah. Um, you know, because they have to understand that it was terrible, it's painful, but your life is going to go on. Mm-hmm. They're kids. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad you said that, Marianne. That is so vitally important. That, and, and you know what? And people have told me I felt guilty the first time I laughed. I felt guilty when I had fun. More than one person, more than 10 people, more than 20 people have told me that. it's. I feel guilty when I had a moment and I caught myself laughing and really meaning it, that how can I be laughing and how can I enjoy this? And it's a process for people to go through sometimes um, to actually get back into this the the swing of of actually enjoying pieces of life and knowing that there are going to be storms that come grief storms grief spurts there are going to it's going to be interspersed like waves moments of of feeling really sad and and really grief stricken and moments of being able to experience joy and working with people who are three to five years into their grief journey um, and and knowing people um, in my life that are in in three to five years in their grief journey and how it changes and morphs over time, how the grief stays with you, but it changes. It doesn't go away. It changes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Wendy, I want to thank you so much for joining us because this is a topic that, that parents really need to understand because no one knows what's happening tomorrow. Um, you know, and it, it's so impa- it's so important that it's handled correctly Absolutely. Um, because it, it does have lifelong, um, you know, effects on a child, just in the divorce and, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and all of these things that, and even the smaller um Little traumas that we think aren't so important. Maybe, um, you know, your your child gets kicked out of their social circle. Right. Um, you know, and you can just chalk it up to, oh, it's teenage drama or, you know, you'll get a new friend. I mean, we, parents really should not underestimate, you know, the impact that these types of sadness cause for these kids. That's correct. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I want to thank you for having me, Marianne. It's been a pleasure to talk to you tonight. And thank you for just being such an insightful parent and an insightful individual and for all the great things that you're doing for parents um, across the nation and across the world at that. (laughs) 
Well, we are international. Yes, <laughs> I don't know if they wonderful. understand the thing I'm saying, but whatever. <laughs> uh, tell us how we can find you, Wendy. Well, you can go to kidlucians.com, and you can find me there. Um, and I'm also on Blogspot, just kidlucians.blogspot.com. But you can find our blog through our main website. And you have downloads, and you um, review products. So if you just briefly, just tell us what that's all I about. I do. Thanks for asking about that, Marianne. Um, I did start the Kid Lucian's Preferred Product Award um, and the um, Kid Lucian's um, Awards for Products That Change Lives. And those are products that I review as well as um, parents across the country review um, for things that help kids develop social-emotional um you know, skills, because those are vital, because our social-emotional abilities are what predict our success in life, far greater than how old we are when we learn to read and how well we can do a math equation. So social-emotional development is where it's at, and that's why we started those. Um, and you can find that through our main website as well, the kidlutions.com website. Um, and so, yeah, so those products are products that we award, which are exemplary in their field. And so the the product awards are both for the social emotional piece, but then we have another one that does just products that make that change lives, that make a difference in people's lives. So those are products like for kids with dyslexia um, and reading difficulties and learning disabilities, um, those kinds of things that might not be social emotional um, related directly, but they absolutely do have a side effect on social emotional development. Well, it, trust me, it is worth a visit. And again, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot, Marianne. You have a great night. You too. Uh, before we go, I do want to mention that we are doing a special event. Um, unless you have been in a cave, I'm sure that you've heard um, all of the concern and chaos going on about the proposed changes to the DSM-5. Um, this should be no surprise to my listeners because I have been talking about it for a year and a half. And we are getting closer, and a lot of information is coming out. Um, we have a lot of very nervous parents. Um, there could be good reason to be nervous, and there could be an overreaction. And I really feel that the best way for us to find out what's going on is to hear it from the people um, on opposing ends of the table. So this Wednesday night, I will be having on Dr. Alan Francis. He's been on before. He was the um, chair of the DSM-4 task force, um, and he will be returning. And he has been a very um, strong um, advocate against the DSM-5. And he's going to come on and he's going to talk about his concerns um, to address the autism community that seems to be mostly affected. Although, as I've said, I think that people, um, parents with children with bipolar um, should also um, be staying aware. Um, at any rate, in, to ensure that I correctly represent this, um, I am going to be having on um, Dr. Temple Grandin, Rebecca Banks, and Diane Kennedy, the authors of Bright Not Broken. Um, who are speaking out about their concerns. So that will be Wednesday night, 9 o'clock will be Dr. Alan Francis, 9.30 will be the authors of Bright Not Broken. And then I am waiting to hear back, and I will be announcing a date that I have invited um, a member of the DSM-5, the present um, task force, um, who are drafting the DSM, um, to have a representative on, and we are working out a date for hopefully next week or the week after, and we will hear from them. Um, exactly what is going on, what the changes are, what the science is behind the changes, because really, you know, what I'm here to do is to make sure that the parents are informed and educated. So that is how um, I'm going to be dealing with the um, controversy, and I hope that you know, we get some information out and we get some parents calmed down. So as I end each show, you are your parents' best advocate. You are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent. Thank you for joining us tonight on The Coffee Clutch.